Hi everyone, this is Exhibiting Kinship, a podcast dedicated to discussing Indigenous interventions in the museum world. I'm Felicia Garcia, one of your hosts. And I'm Miranda Roberts, your other host. Today, we are so happy to have Nijun Menka on our podcast. She is the Tribal Cultural Resources Policy Fellow at UC Berkeley School of Law. Welcome, Nijun. Welcome. Thank you, ladies. All right. So if you could just start out by telling us a little bit more about yourself, that would be great. Absolutely. So thank you both so much for the invitation. I've appreciated hearing your guys' work so far, and I love this podcast. And so I'm excited to be able to participate. Mina Gatsuto, Hudan Eslan, Eslan Lumbi, Eslan. My grandmother is Rita Monroe from the village of Koyakuk in Alaska. Uh, my parents are Leonard Minka and Diana Knight. Um, so I'm Koyukon Athabaskan from Alaska and Lumbee from North Carolina, which is, you know, like two different tribes from two different worlds. Uh, so people often ask how my parents met. BYU. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so I am, I have a history in environmental chemistry. I did my master's in that, studying um, environmental pollution and mine tailings, exciting scintillating stuff. Um, eventually took federal Indian law as an elective while I was doing that and fell in love with decolonizing everything basically. <laughs> and so I had a really great professor, um, Rob Williams, who's also Lumbee actually at the University of Arizona when I was doing that graduate work. And so I was in a PhD program. I left that with my master's, went to law school. It's the best decision I ever made. Um, I feel like it had always been in my nature to be an advocate for our people and our communities. And so um, I'm an auntie. I have five nieces and nephews. And uh, yeah, that's that's the short story of my 42 years <laughs> of existence. <laughs> uh, so how did you end up at Berkeley? Yeah. So, you know, after I graduated law school, I clerked um, during law school and uh, really loved public policy. Right. Um, After I graduated, I ended up going back to uh, the law firm that I had clerked with for a summer in D.C. to our Michigan office. Um, The people there were really great. They kind of reminded me of my hometown folks in Alaska, like super laid back. Um, So I was there for almost two years as an attorney um, working for tribal clients, it's a major, you know, um, Indian owned law firm serving Indian country offices around the country. Notably, they have an office in Sacramento, which is how I kind of came across starting to do some of this tribal cultural resource work. Um, Some of the laws in California, uh, you know, can be uh, complicated and there's a lot of, you know, change happening in California with indigenous communities. There's, you know, various ways within which, you know, they need assistance advocating. Um, the laws change pretty frequently. And so tribal consultation um, gets triggered a lot with development. And so I started doing some of that work through the Sacramento office, even though I was located in Michigan. And then as part of that, I came across um, a position at Berkeley. I was actually double checking on a posting. So I'm on the board for um, Society for Chicanos and Native Americans in Science. It's a great organization, plug for them. 
Uh, and we were looking for an executive director. I wanted to make sure that a posting had made it to like higher And so I went in there and I was like, oh, this is a really great, you know, platform. And I was like, oh, I wonder if they do like law school deans and, and all of that. Right. So I just was like, let me just get reminders about um, tribal law, and those kinds of opportunities. And so it sent me this job at Berkeley. And I was like, I've been doing some of this work. I really like it. It's definitely like hard work for me. And so I applied and this was, you know, probably in March or April. Um, and I was, I guess, probably not keeping in the forefront of my mind because during the pandemic, things had gotten crazy. I was working remotely and most people stopped hiring. Um, and so I heard from them over the summer and they offered it to me um, pretty quickly. And I, I will say that I took some time to think about accepting it just because, uh, I don't know if our listeners, but I'm sure most of the community knows, you know, the history of Berkeley and repatriation uh, and or the lack thereof, right? And so uh, I had to have, you know, a real long uh, think about it before I accepted the position. And I also asked for more money. So. <laughs> but I accepted it and there, here I am, um, virtually albeit, but yes. Love the job. And so do you um, do a lot of work with the communities who are represented by the collections at Berkeley? So, I mean, I guess I would say that what the position is and the way that the position was designed, so the fellowship, so to speak, it really is initially like outreach to tribal communities. What do you need help with? It's meant to be a tribal capacity building project. So how can this project help you better be an advocate, um, help you, you know, preserve, repatriate, uh, whatever it is that you need um, for sacred sites, sacred objects, cultural patrimony, ancestors. Um, and so it's really forcing me to like ask what people need. And I have been doing that for several months and have gleaned several things of which one is, yes, they do need assistance um, with repatriation. Um, they do have a NAGPRA coordinator at UC Berkeley. Um, all of the UCs are meant to have those now. Uh, but I think, you know, and we can talk about this a little later, I think that there's hurdles still yet, right? I think the, the funding aspect, right? It's kind of like one of these unfunded mandates that the government hands down and, and the intention is great. The, the, you know, the words are there, um, but where's the money to back it up and to make this, make this happen? And, and so I think that's why we're seeing that even though NAGPRA passed in 1990 and um, its sister California state law, Cal NAGPRA passed in 2001 initially, we're still seeing the lack of repatriation for some institutions. Some have done well, but not so much for easy birthday. That's what I was going to ask is maybe for the listeners who don't know about the tumultuous history of Berkeley and repatriation, if you could give us a little, a little snippet of it. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> 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 no, I mean, let's be honest. Like, it, it's 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 not funny, but you know, us Indian people, we got to use our humor to make it through these like traumatic things that continue to happen. Uh, and so, that being said, I think that when NACRA came down, you know, that was um, a lot of hard work, right, for people fighting to get ancestors home. Um, you know, it's really something that comes out of the international human rights framework. Um, it is a human rights law um, at its core. 
And, you know, its sole purpose is to bring ancestors home, to bring, you know, cultural objects that are sacred to ceremony home so that we can regain what has long been taken from us um, and withheld from us. And in some cases continues to be withheld from us. And so uh, in the case of UC Berkeley, there has been widely publicized, um, I will say. So this is not anything confidential or privy to my particular um, position, but quite frankly, institutional hurdles and uh, construing language in the law to the, be- the benefit of scientists versus uh, tribal communities. Basically taking scientific um, researchers' words uh, and methodologies and holding those up as uh, what is right and what, what is real and basically disenfranchising and um, quite frankly, just being disrespectful to tribal communities. You know, I mean, this was about a human rights piece of legislation and yet they literally took it and were like, well, sorry, your, your story about, you know, your creation story or your story about ceremony and your oral history is not valid in our eyes. We've done carbon dating and we don't think that you actually um, are, you know, the modern day descendants of this ancestor from, you know, to 5,000 years ago, you know, whatever the case may be, right? Uh, That historically has been the issue. I think funding is the current issue. Um, Progress is being made, I will say, uh, but Berkeley still remains um, the institution with the largest amount of ancestors in the country. Right. Um, I'm curious to hear more about Cal Nagpra. I, I mean, I'm honestly like kind of embarrassed that I didn't really know about it until recently, especially being like a California native. I saw something about it on like a commercial for license plates that have like California native baskets on them. And like the goal for these license plates was to raise money to fund Cal Nagpra um, repatriations. And um, I just thought that was so interesting, but I would love to hear more about like what, like the specifics of that law and how it differentiates from NAGPRA itself. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the Cal NAGPRA was passed to uh, really put some teeth um, and to, to force state agencies, right? And when I say state agencies, you know, I, I, it's museums, but museum is defined as anyone who receives state funding. Um, and so that, you know, conceivably is, is every state agency, therefore. So obviously NAGPRA was not being complied with. That has been an issue in California. Um, and so the legislature and, and, you know, the community, again, has to be the advocate, has to take the lead, has to continue to put time and resources towards um, achieving these, you know, the compliance, right, with this basic human rights legislation. And so California um, passed this in 2001, and it's been amended a few times, I think, you know, most notably recently with AB 275. And, and these are meant, you know, these amendments, they fill, you know, like gaps, um, in the law, right, which really is tries to overcome some of those um, hurdles that you saw that the institutions like, you know, Berkeley and their academic um, departments and faculty members try to use as uh, a way to prevent repatriation. And so what AB 275 did, which is, you know, the California system, they like have these cute little names that, um, you know, <laughs> they stick with the bill forever. Uh, and so... AB 275 did a couple of 
really awesome things. I mean, it's not perfect, right? Like it's a Western uh, <laughs> codified law, so it's, it's never going to be perfect. However, um, they did, I think, most notably uplift tribal knowledge, mm-hmm. right? So that's one of the things that I've mentioned before. So tribal knowledge, oral history um, is meant to be given uh, deference, right? It's meant to rise up to meet that preponderance of the evidence that the law calls for, right? So that's how much evidence you need to have to prove cultural affiliation, right? I'm the tribe. We are the group of tribes that are, you know, the ancestors to or de- uh, descendants of the ancestors that you're holding, right? So that's the the process by which you go about, you know, seeking repatriation. And so AB 275 was really great in that it did that. Um, there's a couple of other ways that I think AB 275 could be meaningful. Um, one is that it's meant to require tribal consultation immediately. So as soon as you start doing an inventory, the tribes need to be there doing that inventory with you. Uh, and it sets a deadline uh, for, I believe, next year, <laughs> which uh, for Berkeley, uh, you know, let's hope uh, progress is made. But the key there is that it's a tribal voice at the process at the beginning. It's not a retroactive, hey, you know, we think this might be y'all's, <laughs> right? And so it's really trying to bring a level of respect to tribal communities um, that I think has been, you know, needed to be codified, frankly, in order for people to, to, to do it. So that's the short end of that. <laughs> I was wondering, so in, a, in your, your own ideal world, like how would all of this play out? I mean, we could always say, give it all back, but it, what is that like in your ideal world, if you could have it in any way or anything like that, what would it, what would repatriation look like? I think in my ideal world, it would be, um, there would be a lot more collaboration. So I know there are tribes, you know, there are tribes that are doing really well, right? They've, Um, either got gaming or some other sort of, you know, economic development base that is allowing them to have, you know, land to provide for reburials, to have their own museums and cultural programming. Um, And then there's tribes that don't have that, you know, Um, state recognized tribes or NAHC listed tribes, um, whatever you want to call it, they might not have all of those things. And a lot of federally recognized tribes, I don't think have all of those things. Um, So what I'd like to see is the ability for tribes that don't have land and don't have the museums and all of that set up right now, I'd like for them to have access and, you know, ownership, even though they might remain to be housed within the institution. Um, And I think, you know, UCLA, for example, did a really great job um, doing a reburial for tribes that did not have land. They actively found land uh, with the tribe and engaged in, you know, an agreement or an MOU, whatever um, type of agreement they set up uh, between them to have that reburial, right? And so there's ways within which we can think outside of, you know, the systems to achieve these things. And so I would like to see people take the, the spirit of the law, the purpose of the law to achieve repatriation, to achieve um, you know, self-determination, sovereignty, cultural revitalization, language revitalization, and to allow that to be you know, the end and the means, however you can get that 
you know, done is, is what I would like to see. I, I, I still do see people being very like compliance um, concerned, right? So they're like, well, it says this. I mean, what if a, another tribe comes and says that they're culturally affiliated five years later, what are we going to do then? You know, I mean, it's all these like, what ifs, there's these what ifs and, and, but really we need to be thinking more of the, you know, how can we do what is being asked of us, right? It's not like every tribe is knocking at your door right now. You just need to do what you need to do for the tribes who are actively have the, the power and then be proactive to the tribes who don't have the land and the power and the space and the resources to work with them and consult with them to give them access to their ancestors and the cultural um, knowledge, you know, that is housed within these institutions. Right. That was a great question, Miranda. Thank you. That was a great answer. Thank you. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm just in awe. Like, so many amazing words that you just shared. Um, but it sounds like there is a lot of a intellectual labor involved in the work you do, but also emotional labor. What is it like to be doing this work as an indigenous woman? It's not easy all the time. <laughs> I think I'll, I'm not going to lie. Like the first several months were very hard. So um, I went to the Association of American Indian Affairs NAGPRA conference, right? It was the 30th anniversary of NAGPRA. And, you know, there's a few, you know, like success stories, but all of it is very difficult to talk about. You know, the fact that people don't want to return your ancestors and that continue wrong I mean, it's like the knife in the back being twisted. Um, and, you know, the fact that I'm trying to learn my language, right? And the fact that I'm just having to force myself into these, these spaces and places and have a seat at the table and use my voice. And then being having them look at me like, uh, I don't know if that's quite right, what we should be doing. Or, you know, it's just the second guessing from the institution, um, which, you know, I, I'm well equipped to handle that, but I think it is heartbreaking, right? To see and to, to hear the stories and to see the gatekeepers and to be like still knocking on the door. I mean, technically I'm behind, you know, <laughs> being at the university, but you know, not really. And so, yeah, um, I will say like, my mom has this really great bookcase and I was in Albuquerque at her place for a few months um, during quarantine before I started quarantine here. And there, the book about Ishii was on her bookshelf and it's published in like early 1900s by Alfred Kroeber's wife. Um, and so that is just a, and so I, I felt like obligated to read it. So I tried to, to do that and I haven't made it through yet because of, I mean, I just, honestly, I just start crying. <laughs> so it's, it's traumatizing. And so, yeah, that's, it's hard. So self-care, I take time to go out for long walks and I, um, I put myself aboard, up, above, you know, the work on some days, especially if it's just emails and stuff. <laughs> Do you think decolonization factors into your work at all? Well, I think it factors into any Indigenous advocate's work just because, you know, when I spoke about the changes that AB 275 brought to the law, you know, that really is a decolonizing change to the law, lifting up tribal knowledge. Um, obviously the Western systems, especially law, right? I mean, you want to talk about the doctrine of discovery and, you know, 
the fact that, you know, things like manifest destiny and westward expansion and, and all of these ideologies that silence and, and erase us. Um, we're fighting that every day just by our mere existence. <laughs> and so I don't think that um, that work will, will ever stop until I, you know, we're at a, a place of peace where, where we feel like we can exist without having to resist, right? So I'm really fascinated by your background in environmental chemistry. And I'm curious about, like, when you went to law school, did you think that you would end up doing this kind of work? Or was that your, your vision for yourself? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. So, hmm, well, I'll preface this by saying, like, when I started undergrad, I was like a poli-sci major. And I was like, I'm going to go to law school. <laughs> And then I like fell in love with science. Like I had a full on, like I call it this love affair that I have with science. <laughs> and I full on did like, I went hard on the page. I was like bench chemistry. Um, I'm doing like the sampling. I was at a particle accelerator at Stanford. Okay. Like doing like wow. bunker. <laughs> I called it a bunker. <laughs> yeah. It, I was deep. I was in deep. Um, but I always, always been working with um, tribal, you know, and, and indigenous communities to, you know, like hear their stories, um, climate change and, you know, change in the Arctic has always been hard work for me too. And so I would always been tying all of these things together. I think, you know, I know for myself as an indigenous person, I'm a very holistic thinker. So I'm constantly like, this is connected to this and this is connected to this. I don't see like the little silos, you know, that people like to put the little boxes and stuff. So it didn't feel like anything like disjunctive or, you know, like there was no, um, problem with me, like shifting into it. Did I think I would do more environmental work? Yes. Yes. But you know, like I'm on the water protectors legal collective board and that's like water defenders, you know, like we're, that's all sacred site work. I mean, technically my project here at the law school now could be um, considered that too. So I don't see that as like, I see them as the same. Right. right. <laughs> but to, yes, I wanted to be an advocate for tribal communities and indigenous peoples. Um, I mean, U of A has a great program on Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy, and I did that certificate. It was amazing. Highly recommend it. That sounds great. Uh, one thing I know you touched on, like the the like more, I guess, how do I say this? The like the leadership aspect to like how people should be more amenable to you know not necessarily going over the law, but like working within it and finding ways to make sure that they're still you know me um being collaborative with indigenous people, but I wonder how do we help or how can like students act like students at Berkeley or everyday people who aren't in this world, like in the world of what we do help these efforts. Right. Well, you know, I think advocacy and allyship are, they're key. Uh, and we need that. You know, one of the reasons that these efforts have not been fully funded yet is because the public pressure hasn't been put on. Um, there's an instance with the Tennessee Valley Authority. They they were, you know, they had a lot of items that needed to be repatriated and had been, you know, like dragging their feet while well, this report from the Government Accountability Office came out and, you know, like publicity came down. And that put the pressure on them to get it done. Um, and I think that's, that's what we need. And in order to, 
to have that public pressure. It can't just be us constantly like knocking at the door and raising, you know, like banging the pans and all of that. Okay. <laughs> we need, we need some coalition building. Can you help me? I'm tired. Um, okay. So speaking of allies and advocacy, I don't think it's our job to educate non-native people about this, but what do you think non-Indigenous people should understand about this work and why should they care? Well, I mean, there's, you know, like my first reaction is to, you know, like have them like just think about this, you know, if it was their ancestor or it was their family. Um, and I'm assuming we're still talking about repatriation, yes. like we could be talking about, you know, a plethora <laughs> of other things. But um, yeah, I think bringing that humanity to it is, you know, one way. Um, and if they don't get that, then I don't really know <laughs> if, if there's hope for them. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, the, the humanness of it and the humanness of the work um, is important. But I think also like, sharing the history, right? So I keep talking about this uh, because I feel like one of the reasons we're, you know, having this disconnect with one another in our country, um, you know, is that we are not teaching people the true history of this country. We're not teaching people much critical thinking until they get to university. You know, there might be a magnet high school here or there that is, you know, doing a good job, but I really do feel like we need, um, some real educational initiatives across the board, not just about, you know, like these kinds of human rights violations, but if you can, you know, we've been dehumanized, right? Colonization has dehumanized us. That's the first step, right? To make us seem other. And so they can, you know, take our land, you know, do cultural genocide, grave looting, and all of those things. Um, that's the way we need to move forward as a collective, right? I think we need people um, to advocate for the truth of history to be taught um, to the kids. I remember in undergrad, I was like, gosh, I wish I was like 19. And I was in this like existential crisis where I was like, oh, what am I gonna, you know, like I grew up Mormon. Whoa. Well, I told you my parents met at BYU, but really it was just my mom was at BYU and my dad came and like, but so I did not like Mormonism. I mean, for several reasons. Uh, one being which they were like, oh, brown Native Americans were cursed with dark skin. I was like, I'm sorry, what? So I was looking for other religious like theories and thoughts, right? And didn't know anything about my traditional cultural beliefs. And I'm in North Carolina in undergrad and I'm, you know, looking for like something that like rings true to me. And um, I completely forgot where I was going with this story. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, the truth telling. Okay, so then I got interested in like, you know, like what does Rastafarianism believe? Because like they seem cool. <laughs> so one of the things that I used to really like distill down from that like ideology and that system was they used to be like, tell the children the truth, like constantly tell the children the truth. And that line has always stuck with me since, you know, I heard it for the first time when I was like 19 and I keep hearing it over and over again now. Right. And the insurrection at the Capitol, I think to myself, if these people were actually taught the truth, 
Would they still be acting like this? What are they mad about? I have, I deal with repatriation in a very many ways where I work, not really, kind of. <laughs> and um, one thing I'm like, there's two things, I guess, to this question. One is, you know, uh, people assuming like native people shouldn't be working in repatriation. Maybe you can give me your thoughts on why that's wrong. <laughs> or like, you know, just some like ideas about like why that's like problematic. I mean, I know, but <laughs> for our listeners. And then two, what is, what are like, what can someone do or groups of people do if they feel like they're not, if an institution at large isn't being compliant with things? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, so to your first query, I, guess, I, I mean, isn't the real question, like, who are you to police this field? Um, you know, and this just goes back to, right, like, stay in your place. And, you know, stay in your, stay in your lane, stay in your place. I'm like, my place is everywhere. My voice is valid in any room that I step into. If I have a seat at the table, I'm going to use that seat and I'm going to make my voice heard, you know? So like just that reframing that paradigm is, that has to happen. Um, And I, I do see that there's a lot of like cultural resource managers who are struggling to kind of like, you know, understand how that they can do this work in a good way or in a pono way or in a you know righteous way um there are ways that we can do this work right they just you know it that's why we need to be there <laughs> it's exactly why we need to be there because honestly they don't know how what if what if you think or if you know how do you I guess for me, one thing I'm always wondering is like, how, what, if, what can you do if you think an institution is non-compliant with NAGPRA? Oh, right. Yeah. The non-compliance. Well, I mean, there's a process. Uh, I think thinking there's non-compliance is one thing. I, I think that complaints need to come from the individuals um, who are seeking repatriation. However, there are tip lines Um I can't think of, you know, like direct you to where they are exactly uh, how to find them, but we can post them, I think, right, later. Uh, And so uh, clearly, like there are, you know, like the UC Berkeley system has a NACRA committee, things go through there. Now there's a whole university interim policy on repatriation that has been most recently released like two weeks ago to comply with AB 275, right, which is supposed to lift up tribal knowledge and increase tribal consultation at the beginning of the process. Um, But there's just going to have to be, I guess, someone's going to have to start, you know, forcing that compliance issue. The National NAGPRA office within the National Park Service, I think they do try to do a good job um, when there are you know, discrepancies and disagreements that come up between um, museums or agencies and tribes seeking repatriation. I think that, you know, it shouldn't ever get to that point though, right? At this point, if you're asking, if there's, 
you know, like any reason that there might be more than one tribe, then that agency, you know, they need to do the work to to find out who that other group is and give them the opportunity to decline to be involved. Um, and the tribe can do that work too. You know, I think one thing that we're not doing enough of is doing coalition building to allow tribes to contract with one another. Um, hey, you know, you're federally recognized or you're state recognized and, and I'm not, can you help me, right? Like you can have a contract as an individual or 501c3 and, you know, ask for tribal assistance to get those items back if you're not federally recognized or state recognized. Those are colonial systems, you know, systems of federal and state recognition. And, you know, we don't always have to play their game, right? There's other ways and the law allows for us to contract freely and we can do that, right? So I think, you know, Having people think outside the box is, I think, really key and one of the things that I want people to, you know, kind of think about um, and to suggest those as options, right? Like, if you have to deny someone's repatriation claim, say, hey, you know, I've heard that there are ways for you to go about this. Maybe think about X, Y, and Z option. That is not illegal for you to say and to alert them. And I think, you know, if you're a good ally and you're doing the work in a, in a positive way, in a real you know, honorable way, then you will provide that information instead of just saying, no, cannot, we cannot, you know? Yes. And that is, thank you. I feel, um, for me, uh, this idea that of, I guess is, it's like, for me, at least from my experience has been like, don't even ask about NAGPRA because you're too involved, but then also like this idea that like the law is too complicated and you don't want to get too involved with that and I was like I don't think it's that complicated and then like making me afraid like and then I feel like this intimidation factor right of that an institution might use against people who don't have the resources right that are that need to help to get it done so I think this is very important way to bridge those two things yeah, and I will say that one of the projects that the I have pro bono students at the law school that I'm working with, and they are um, assisting in developing a tribal cultural resources law handbook, of which, you know, we're trying to do plain language advocacy tactics. Here's the law. Here's the way within you can utilize it and advocate for yourself. Um, here's, you know, challenges and successes that people have, you know, achieved protecting sacred sites or, you know, repatriation or whatnot. Um, and so really keeping in mind and, and having the focus be on that human rights narrative, you know, infusing our tactics and our advocacy under the guise of the United Declarations of Indigenous Peoples' Rights um, and having, you know, tribal law as a first strategy too, right? Like come into the process saying, here's our tribe's consultation policy. Here's the way that we approach repatriation. Here's our way of thinking. Here's our worldview, you know, <laughs> and we're bringing that to you. Um, and so I think that we can do good work going forward if, if we kind of reframe the narrative and are, you know, lifting us up first. Um, so I think a lot of institutions kind of hide behind the law and pretend that there is a specific way that they have to do things. But then we hear about museums like the um, Museum of Us in San Diego that is doing, uh, allowing repatriation for items that entered their collection through a colonial pathway. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, ways that 
museum or not even just museums but stewards of collections can find ways around the law if that makes sense you mean in a positive way yes i mean in a positive way because we know there are so many loopholes that people use to avoid or to go around the law in a negative way right, right, but right. like i would love to hear more about like the flexibility and the fact that institutions don't have to follow this like very strict path uh, to repatriation yeah and so i think for especially under nagpra um i can't speak as to cal nagpra um but under nagpra there is a um there is language that says you know an entity can engage with a tribe through another mechanism to repatriate to achieve repatriation um it doesn't necessarily have to be like this stringent if you guys want to do an agreement uh, you you guys can do that, right? That's in there. And so I think what the Museum of Us is doing, which I'm not hugely familiar with, but I did hear um, them present on decolonizing museums at AAIA conference. <clears throat> and so I think that it just has to, the institutional will has to be there. And, and for some place like the Museum of Us, right, that's the the institutional hierarchy isn't as, you know, um, onerous as an entity like UC Berkeley, right? So I just wrote a potential like course syllabus for, um, for UC Berkeley for a seminar for legal studies and it's titled uh, Racial and Colonial Foundations of UC Berkeley. <laughs> and it's based off of work that the Truth and Justice Project, which started I think in 2019, but I just recently joined when I started um, at Berkeley, have been doing research in the archives, um, you know, the records in the Hearst, and the research that's been coming out of there has just been, you know, really, uh, I guess I'd say fascinating, um, but also also it's traumatizing. But so that's going to infuse some of the work that's going to go into that course, right? Having those conversations and knowing that information, right? Like. The Museum of Us is saying, oh, anything that came through a colonial pathway. If UC Berkeley said that, then they'd have to give everything away because of the grave looting and, you know, the way that the Miranda <laughs> cracking me up. <laughs> I mean, you know. Right. So, I mean, we got we to gotta think about, you know, instead of terrifying these uh, museums and agencies, I think what they need to think to themselves is how can we actually make society a better place through our work? And I don't think that a lot of them currently do that. I think a lot of them view themselves as, you know, uh, property owners, you know, can you be a cultural repository of knowledge that, you know, allows access to these things instead of, you know, being terrified and honestly, you know, really places like the Hearst Museum at Berkeley, they don't need to be doing engaging in anything other than repatriation right now, you know? So it's time to stop and think. And, you know, one of the things that I was, I took notes, I take notes profusely, all the meetings and things that I've been learning um, over the course of, you know, this position, which I just started in, like late September, 
you know, I wrote down like hashtag times up, <laughs> like return the ancestors. Like if you haven't done your research by now, like it's not going to get done, you know, like times up. Yes. All right. Let's start talking about earrings then so you can eat your sushi and relax. <laughs> who's, who's first? Najoon? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I'm sad I had to wear these little headphones because these are like so fantastic. Um, mother of Pearl, silver. I mean, there's lapis. I think there's a, another silver bead down here. More mother of pearl leather. And like my sister and mom started like making jewelry again. My mom was on a probably 40 year hiatus of making jewelry. Um, and just started, you know, my, my younger sister, Julia, she has her BFA. And so she, you know, has a little bit of experience, but my mom and her together are like making some really amazing stuff. So it's a family business that's new at Doyon Designs. They're on the gram. And these are like, you know, custom made, all that good stuff. Yes. Um, let me take mine off. Yeah, the headphones, they're always getting in the way of the earrings. I i did not get the dentalium memo, so these are mine. <laughs> true, true. I, I literally did get the memo, so I have, <laughs> I have no excuse. Um, so the, I love these earrings. I was just like, feeling like I needed some hoop energy today. Um, but they, you know, sometimes you just feel that, but they are made by Nanaba Beck, who is, I'll hold them up. I'm like holding them below the camera. <laughs> um, she is an amazing Dene silversmith. Her Instagram handle is not above. And they, okay, so they're sterling silver and the little hoop like moves. It has a little freshwater pearl and it moves and she had this amazing explanation of the meaning behind them when I bought them and it was like something about like the fluidity of gender like and that's why they move and I am definitely not going to explain it as eloquently as she did but I was just so amazed that she had this like very deep meaning behind these really beautiful earrings so I love them definitely look her up she makes like such beautiful classy earrings so yeah so I guess I'll go <laughs> thank you <laughs> these are made by my friend uh Jane Meyer uh who is a who's Comanche and Blackfeet she has done like cultural advising for uh movies as well as uh she's a producer and she's been in Ralph Lauren ads as um as a indigenous representative well i'm gonna stop the recording should we all say well at least on the recording we'll say bye <laughs> okay all right bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> felicia's gonna have too much editing to do bye guys aloha <laughs>